before we enter into this phase of worship, because the study of the Word of God is worship, and and so I'll give you a moment before we um, we open with prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We ask that you enlighten us by your word. We ask that you implant it in our souls. I ask that you give me your words for your glory to be delivered to your people, that your name may be praised. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, we're in a study of the covenants. We're studying the four major covenants, the Abrahamic Mosaic, Davidic, and New Covenants. And just by way of review, this study of the covenants, we're kind of comparing it to to a canopy tour, the way you would make a tour of the rainforest or what they call uh, frequently the cloud forest, like in 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 Costa Rica, for example. In order to see the forest, you have to get above the canopy of the forest you can look at the, the, the details of the leaves of the trees, of the, of the vines. You can look at the trees themselves. But if you want to see for miles and you want to see the forest itself, you get above the canopy and you can see the whole forest itself. That's kind of what the covenants are, what the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New Covenants are. Because they give us the meta narrative of the Bible, the big story, the big picture of the Bible. Sometimes we study the the itty-bitty details of a verse, as we should. And sometimes we study the theme of a chapter or the theme of a book, as we should. And sometimes we step back and we look at the whole panorama. We look at the whole cloud forest. And that's what the covenant... ...picture view of the Scripture, and not just of the Scripture, but of human events, of human history. We've begun with the first of the covenants, which is the Abrahamic covenant. It is unilateral, unconditional, literal, eternal, and irrevocable. Let me say those again. We've seen that the Abrahamic covenant is unilateral, unconditional, literal, eternal or everlasting, and irrevocable. Five very important characteristics is a sophisticated way of saying promise. The promise was first given in Genesis 12, the first three verses of the chapter, and then it was formalized a couple of chapters later. The covenant, as we've seen, the Abrahamic covenant, depends on the trustworthiness and the integrity of God. The writer of Hebrews said this in Hebrews 6.13, since he could swear by no one greater, since God could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Which is to say, if God does not perform the covenant, then God is not God. He is no God at all. If he reneges on his word, he swore to fulfill this promise to covenant, this promise which is a covenant that he gave to Abraham. He swore it by his own name because there is nothing more powerful, nothing more greater, nothing of significance that, is, that has more authority than the name of God. And that's why he used the most powerful of all things, his name, to validate the assuredness of 
Genesis chapter 12. Mike working. I know the mic is kind of coming in and out. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Okay. If we, if we continue to have a problem with this one, we'll, we'll swap it out. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. This is our home base passage. It's critical to an understanding of the covenant, and for that matter, it's critical to an understanding of the entire Bible. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and will make your name great And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The first part of these three verses, the first part of the promise, includes a direction from God, a directive from God to Abraham, which is pack up all your stuff, load it up, and leave for the rest of your life. Leave where you live, and I will show you the land that I'll bring you to. This is a huge undertaking from Abraham. You see that in the very first part, very first part of verse 1. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Huge, huge undertaking for Abraham and his family. Remember, the patriarch of Abraham's family is Tetra, or Terah. And the, the patriarch is really in charge Abraham's father is still alive, so Abraham has to persuade his father, father that, the, that the revelation of God, that God has given him this revelation and that God has instructed him, directed him to pack up everything and leave Ur of the Chaldees. This is a very wealthy family. They have many possessions, many belongings, and so they, take this, they, they undertake this huge event of moving from Ur, first to Haran, and then ultimately to Canaan. In faith, Abraham believed. Abraham had no idea where the Lord was taking him. This is part of where you, you, you see the great faith of Abraham, because God didn't tell him, pack up everything, persuade your father to leave, and you're going here. God just said, pack up everything and leave. And when you get on the road, then I'm going to tell you where you're going. I'm going to tell you where your destination is. Abraham didn't say, no, 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 I'm not prepared to do that. You're asking too much from me, God. Abraham just obeys. And his obedience, it reveals his faith. The same thing for us, right? When we obey God, it displays our faith, first in salvation, then in sanctification. uh, Believing in the Lord for your salvation is an act of obedience, Obedience, right? That's the word that the culture tells us to cringe at, teaches us to recoil at obedience. It's a soft and cuddly and warm and fuzzy word in the scriptures, but from the the, the culture's view, it's a cold and prickly, ugly word. Obedience is a product of faith, and obedience reveals faith. In salvation, we obey God, which is to say we trust in Him, Because we're commanded to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the receiving of eternal life. And that is an act of obedience on our part. Our faith is our obedience. Reveals our obedience. Same thing walking daily. Our our sanctification, walking daily with the Lord, is an act of faith which reveals our obedience. And so Abraham establishes right up front the pattern of 
faith. And we know that his faith from Genesis 15, 6, he was saved in the same way that we're saved. Genesis 15, 6, he believed in the Lord. He believed in Yahweh, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham is the pattern of faith. But once Abraham obeyed God's command in the three elements that we have studied, this is, by the way, just, just kind of review before we get into our passage today. The three elements that we've studied, land, seed, and blessing, those are the three elements of Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Land, seed, and blessing. Those three elements vested unconditionally, irrevocably, literally, eternally. They all vested once Abraham obeyed. As to the land, God promised a specific piece of real estate to Abraham's descendants. He hasn't promised a specific real estate, piece of real estate to the Americans or to the Mexicans or to the Chinese or to the Brits. He's promised it to one people and one people alone, and that's Israel. And he did it out of his sovereignty. You say, well, why didn't he promise a particular piece of land forever to us? Because he didn't. Because he's God. And he chose in his sovereignty a Semitic man, Abraham, to issue this covenant to. We saw last time through the language of Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21, the, the boundaries, the legal description, you would say, of this piece of real estate. It's roughly from modern-day Egypt on the south to Turkey on the north to modern-day Iraq on the east. And at various times in Israel's history, Israel has possessed portions of this. Today they possess a fraction of it. That's an important point. It's an important point to see that Israel has never possessed all of this land. Because what that reveals us, reveals to us, is that the promise is yet future, yet future to be fulfilled. It's not as if it's been fulfilled and we can just ignore this part of the scripture. We can just ignore the legal description of the land that is given in Genesis 15. No, that boundary that is given in Genesis 15, that description of the land that, that, that was possessed by the Kenites and the, and the Canaanites and the, the termites and all the various ites, that description that's given is important. It's important because it's yet to be fulfilled. And the one who will fulfill it is Jesus when he returns. The greatest descendant of Abraham will fulfill the land promise for the benefit of all the descendants of Abraham. That's the land promise that we've seen. And then the seed promise is where we left off last time. Land, seed, and blessing is what God promised to Abraham in the covenant. We've seen the land. Let me talk about the seed. We studied part of the seed last time, the, the, the seed element of the covenant. And you see that in Genesis 12 too, where God said to Abraham that he would make Abraham's descendants into a great nation. Genesis 22 verse 18 adds a little more meat on the bone. We saw briefly Genesis 22 verse 18 last time. There, God says, God adds a little more detail to the covenant, the seed part of the covenant. And in Genesis 22 verse 18, God says, In your seed, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The word seed is the Hebrew word serah which is a very, very, very important word in the Scriptures. Just by way of review, that took us, when, when, we, when we saw Sarah, the, the seed, 
that is referenced in Genesis 22, verse 18, that took us to the very first reference in the Bible to Sarah. The very first reference in the Bible to seed is in Genesis 3. Earlier in Genesis, before the fall, God told Abraham, excuse me, God told Adam and Eve to make babies, right? Be fruitful and multiply. But you don't see the reference to seed until Genesis 3, until after the fall. And so we, we studied last time Genesis 3, verse 15, the references to the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent is that portion of humanity that is aligned with the serpent. We know from Revelation that the serpent of old is the devil himself. And so that portion of humanity that is aligned with the devil, with the evil one, is referred to as the seed of the serpent. They're aligned with the evil one through unbelief. Unbelief is connected to disobedience, just like belief is connected to obedience. And so the vast, overwhelming majority of humanity is the seed of the serpent. Because they live in unbelief, in darkness. They live in disobedience from God, disobedience away from God. And so the seed of the serpent is that portion of humanity that is aligned with Satan by unbelief. It's unbelievers. And the other seed that we saw referenced in Genesis 3.15 is the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is the promised Messiah who's born of a woman. It's not born of a man, right? It was a virgin birth, as we will celebrate next month. It was a virgin birth. Jesus is born from a woman, not from a man. And so he is the seed of the woman. And all who are aligned with him by faith are included in the seed of the woman. Because we're in Jesus. We're described in the, in the epistles by Paul as being in Christ, identified, so united with him, so identified with him that we're in him. And he's in us. That's why he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. As we've studied in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 6, such intimacy. We consume him. He is in us. And we in him. And so we are part, part of the seed of the woman by faith. We're identified with the seed of the woman, Jesus, the Messiah, by faith. That's the seed that we've seen. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And in Genesis 3.15, as we saw last time, God said that there would be perpetual conflict between the seed of the woman and between the seed of the serpent. One group is aligned with the devil, and their destiny is linked to the devil's destiny. The destiny of the seed of the serpent is the lake of fire, which Jesus said was prepared for the devil and his angels. And remember, Jesus called the religious leaders of his day the offspring of the devil. He said, you are of your father, the devil, seed of the serpent. Where the seed of the woman, the the other group, The other group is the seed of the woman. The other group is aligned with Messiah. And our destiny is linked with his destiny. The perpetual conflict that God declared in Genesis 3.15 between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent happens right away. It's developed right away in the scriptures. You see it in Genesis 4, at the beginning of Genesis 4. And so last time we began to track the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. 
in the early chapters of Genesis. And we begin to track the conflict that God prophesied about, the perpetual conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That conflict happens immediately in Genesis 4, where the seed of the serpent, Cain, kills the seed of the woman, his brother. The first murder in human history, one brother with his bare hands killing the other brother. Cain killing Abel. Why? Because Cain was jealous of Abel. The unrighteous killing the righteous. Jesus called Abel righteous. And we know that he's righteous. If Jesus calls him righteous, that means he's righteous by faith. It's not a self-righteousness like Cain. God is pleased, and this is just by way of review, at the beginning of Genesis 4, God is pleased with the offering, with the the sacrifices that that Abel offers God. Remember, Abel was, was a man who offered animal sacrifices. Cain is a man who tills the ground. So Abel, maybe he offered a deer, or maybe he offered some, some sort of a, a, an ox or something. He offered a sacrifice. God is satisfied with his sacrifice, which means he's righteous, and Jesus calls him righteous. Cain, on the other hand, is jealous. He's dissatisfied with God because God is dissatisfied with his sacrifice. Cain is self-righteous, what do you mean you're not happy with my sacrifice, God? We don't know what he offered from the, from the fruit of the ground. Corn, you know, pomegranate, an apple. We don't know what it was. But God was not satisfied with it. And Cain becomes angry because he is self-righteous in his pride. And so the unrighteous kills the righteous. The seed of the serpent kills the seed of the woman. The first seed of The serpent kills the first seed of the woman. And that's right away, right away after God makes this pronouncement and the the, the little boys grow up to be brothers. This was a crime of passion. Cain murdering his brother was a crime of passion. It was jealousy, jealousy because God was pleased with Abel's offering, but not his. And so in Cain's pride, he is offended by God's being pleased with his brother, but not with him. Cain probably did not realize that he was acting as the agent of the devil because the devil's objective is to eliminate the seed of the woman. That has always been his objective, to snuff out the seed of the woman. Cain probably didn't realize that he was acting as the agent of the devil. He just thought, I'm angry, I'm jealous, And I'm going to kill my brother, murder my brother. But Cain was functioning as the devil's servant, perhaps unknowingly, but functioning as his servant. The reason the devil seeks to eliminate the seed of the woman is because the seed of the woman will destroy the devil himself. Then in chapter 4, Cain's descendants follow Cain's Unrighteousness. Follow Cain's pattern of righteousness. Last time I mentioned that his descendants created a wicked society. Let me show you what I mean by that. Please turn to Genesis 4. Genesis 4, verse 17. We're making our way to Noah. But what I want to do today is track a little bit more the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and the conflict between those two. I want you to see God's prophecy being fulfilled in the early chapters of Genesis 
with the conflict between seed of the woman and seed of the serpent. Genesis 4, verse 17. It reads like this. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. This is not the same Enoch who walked with God. We'll get to him in a moment in chapter 5. Cain, we see here in verse 17, built the first city with a culture and with a society. Cain is the inventor of city life. He builds the first of the cities. Keep reading. Verse 18, now to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad became the father of Mehujael, and Mehujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zilha, or Zillah. So Cain's descendant, Lamech here, is the first recorded polygamist. You see this break in the, in the events of Scripture. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, this beauty, this peace, this prosperity, this, this relationship between God and man. The fall, Genesis 3, Genesis 4 begins with murder. The seed of the serpent, Cain's line, murder. And now we have Lamech, who we'll see is the the most famous of all of Cain's descendants, introducing open rebellion against God's design for marriage, which of course is between one man and one woman. Keep reading in verse 20. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So here Cain's descendant Jabal invented the idea of tent societies for those who don't live in in cities. Think of them as maybe as as Bedouins, as our modern-day Bedouins. Keep reading in verse 21. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. So here we have Cain's descendant Jubal inventing entertainment, musical entertainment, that is. Verse 22, as for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naama. So here we have Cain's descendant, Tubal-Cain, inventing metallurgy, or at least the early ideas of metallurgy, for weapons and for tools. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So Lamech, the most famous of Cain's descendants, is not just the first polygamist. He's the first one in recorded scripture who brags about his sin. He's the first one who arrogantly boasts about murdering other people. Lamech is also the first in the scripture, this in the line of Cain, the descendant of Cain, who verbally mocks God. He verbally, with his words, mocks God. You see the the mocking that he's doing. Remember, God punished Cain for murdering Abel, and God and 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 Cain said, Your punishment is too great. And so God said, I'm going to give you a sign. Remember in verse 17. There was a sign, excuse me, verse 15 of chapter 4, and and God says, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. Cain was worried about the severity of God's judgment that, that God had imposed on him 
for murdering his brother Abel. And God says, I'm going to put a sign on you and whoever murders you, they will be avenged sevenfold. So Lamech, the descendant of Cain, comes in sevenfold. That's nothing. That's nothing. Whoever messes with me, they're going to be avenged 77-fold. He's threatening his wives is what he's doing. He's threatening the, the, the women. And he's threatening everybody else. Don't mess with me. I'm the big dog. I'm bad. That's kind of the idea that, that Lamech is saying. And he's using God's word in a way that's mocking God's word. That's, that, that, that's saying, oh yeah, God avenges seven, but I am so impressive that I avenge 77 so he's the, the most famous of, of Cain's descendants, Lamech, is the first one who verbally mocks God. He's the first polygamist, and he's the first one who boasts about his sin, boasts about murdering. What we're seeing in chapter 4 is really a tandem line of events. In chapter 4, with Cain's line of descendants, we're seeing two things. We're seeing the invention of evil the cultivation, the development of evil, and the development of societal prosperity, right? Societal developments, metallurgy, entertainment, city life. When I say entertainment, I mean musical entertainment and civilization in general. So these two things are are being developed in tandem. In chapter 4, the line of Cain, Cain's descendants are creating new forms of evil, and also developing societal developments, societal improvements. These things work together at the same time. It's not that city life is bad. It's not that metallurgy tools or metal weapons, metal tools are bad in and of themselves. It's not that that a musical instrument is bad in and of itself. It's not that a city or civilization is bad in and of itself. But those things are used here by the line of Cain, things that are otherwise morally neutral are used for evil. We see the same thing today. It's no different in the 21st century, right? We have modern medicine, which is morally neutral, right? Hormone therapy, morally neutral. But then what you do is, in humanity's sinful brokenness, you take hormone therapy and you try and reverse God's created order and you try and make a man a woman or a woman a man or technology, right? The internet is morally neutral in and of itself. It's like a, it's like a screwdriver or a hammer. But you can use the internet to have vast dissemination of wickedness or you can use the internet to have vast dissemination of the word of God. The internet itself is morally neutral, Societal developments in and of themselves are morally neutral. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not dissing societal developments. I like air conditioning. I like antibiotics. I like all those things. We live like kings compared to the kings of, of centuries ago. Running water? A toilet that sends that stuff out of the house? You never have to see it again? I mean, we live like kings. But what happens is, Just like the line of Cain, prosperity, sinful humanity is hopelessly broken, hopelessly evil. And we pervert every single blessing of God. Everyone, without exception. Everyone. Sex, we pervert it. Money, we pervert it. Power, we pervert it. 
Medicine, we pervert it. But there's nothing new under the sun. We're actually not that creative. Because it was happening there with the line of Cain early on in chapter 4 of the book of Genesis. Cain's line created a godless society. God is mentioned zero times in chapter 4. Zero times in chapter 4. You don't find God mentioned at all among the descendants of Cain. None. Because this is a godless society, godless society that they created. Cain was part of the seed of the serpent, and his progeny followed his pattern. Cain tried to extinguish the seed of the woman, the first seed of the serpent killing the first seed of the woman. But of course, God and God's plan is unstoppable. God's word is unstoppable. It cannot be thwarted. And so what God does is when the first seed of the serpent kills the first seed of the woman, God says, I'll make a new line. I'll make a new line, which is where we ended last time. Go to the end of, verse, of chapter 4, where God creates a replacement for Abel. Chapter 4, verse 25 We see God creating a replacement for Abel and Abel's seed. In verse 25, we read, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another Sarah, another seed, translated here offspring, in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to Kim also, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. We're given Enosh's name. Remember, Moses wrote the the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Moses is giving us Enosh's name. Moses is giving us the name of the son of Seth so that we understand that Seth doesn't just come and go. God is creating a new line through this new son of Adam and Eve, Seth. He's creating a new line through Seth. But what I really want to focus on here is the righteousness of this new line. You see this in the phrase at the end of verse 26, men began to call on the name of the Lord. This means this is the replacement seed of the woman. People began to proclaim God's name. They began to worship God. When you witness to someone at the grocery store or in the doctor's office or at your place of employment, you witness to someone, you're following the pattern of Seth, the child, the son of Adam and Eve, the seed of the woman, the replacement line for Abel. You're following his pattern because Seth and Seth's line created the pattern of calling upon the name of the Lord. When someone stands behind a pulpit, and they proclaim God's word, or they do it privately in a private conversation with their family member at Thanksgiving or at Christmas or in some familial or or friendship relationship, either privately or publicly, they're following the pattern of Seth, which is to call on the name of the Lord. We're following Seth, who was this replacement line who came from Adam and Eve. What we're seeing is a contrast. We're seeing a contrast between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Seed of the serpent, Cain and Cain's descendants, chapter 4. Seed of the woman, 
we're getting a peek at it at the end of chapter 4, and then it'll get unfolded in more detail in chapter 5. So let's get to chapter 5. Chapter 5 gives us a genealogy of Seth's line. We don't have time to, to get into the gene- genealogy from verses 1 through 20, but that's the genealogy from Seth to Enoch. Look at verse 21 in chapter 5. Enoch lived 65 years. Of course, this is a different Enoch than the descendant of Cain. This is a descendant of Seth. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. Walking with God is a life of relationship and fellowship with God. He did it for 300 years is what it says. Can you imagine? I'm doing good to do it for a day before I fall out of fellowship. I'm not saying he was sinless. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying for centuries, this is a man who was godly, who was obedient, not sinless, But this is a man who trusted in the Lord, was saved. And after he was saved, he was born a sinner like every other other person who has been born other than Jesus. And then when he would sin, he'd return to God. I don't know what the method of of returning to God was. I mean, it it was confession of sin, just like our confession of sin. But this is a man who walked with God. That's a descript- Walking with God is a description of, of relationship and fellowship with God. It's an act of faith and obedience. But really what I want you to see here with Enoch is we see the first introduction to eternal life. Here we get exposed to eternal life, the concept of eternal life. For the first time in the scripture, it's life with God after life on this earth. Right? That's what it says. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. God took him to be with him. God took Enoch to be with God in heaven. So we're seeing life with God after life on this earth. That's what eternal life is. It is quality of life, life existence with the author of life, intimacy with the author of life forever in heaven That's eternal life. It's not about quantity of life. Everybody's going to live forever, as we've seen in the Gospel of John. Some will live forever in the the lake of fire, and others will live forever with God. And so we get our first exposure to the concept of eternal life here in the line of Seth, in the line of the seed of the woman. Then the genealogy goes from Enoch to Lamech. Keep reading in verse 28. Verse 28 reads like this, Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Notice the contrast between the two Lamechs. We have two Lamechs. Lamech number one, the descendant of Cain, chapter 4 seed of the serpent. Lamech number two, the descendant of Seth, chapter five, seed of the woman. The Lamech in the line of Cain disrespected God's words, right? If Cain was avenged sevenfold, then I will be avenged 77-fold because I'm the big dog. That's the Lamech 
the proudful, arrogant, the prideful, arrogant Lamech of the seed of the serpent. He's saying, I'm bigger than God. Then we have the Lamech who is the descendant of Seth, the seed of the woman, who respected God's judgment, who feared God's word. He respected the words of judgment from God. He says here, Noah will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. The second Lamech acknowledged the pain of the curse and longed for relief. He acknowledged the reality of the suffering that we have in this world because of the curse, because of our sin, and he longed for relief from that suffering where the first Lamech says, I'm going to dominate it. I'm going to dominate this planet. I'm the king of the world. That kind of view, the first Lamech. The second Lamech acknowledges that we have, that, that, that we're suffering under a curse, and he longs for relief of it. This is what we do. This is what the seed of the woman does. This is what believers do. This is what Paul spoke about in Revelation, excuse me, Romans 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We long for the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman, all caps, to undo the curse, to remove the curse. We long for that because when the seed of the woman with whom we have become aligned by faith, with whom we have ident- been identified with by our faith, when the seed of the woman gives us relief from the curse, then we will have rest. Rest. And then we will lay down our spiritual weapons. And we will be home. And we will rest. This is what Lamech speaks of. He speaks of Noah in terms of rest. It's the Hebrew word nacham, which is the PL stem. And really the PL stem of the, of the Hebrew word nacham, translated here rest, many Bibles translated as comfort. It's to comfort. And so Lamech, the second Lamech, longs for the rest that he is expecting through Noah, for the rest and the comfort that he's expecting through Noah. He doesn't think that Noah is the Messiah, but he's longing for rest and comfort and relief from the curse. And it will be given through Noah, but in a way that Lamech would never have imagined. There will be rest and comfort through Noah, but it will be given by God in a supernatural way because through Noah... God will deliver humanity from extreme evil and God will preserve the seed of the woman by protecting the line of Seth, the line that was a replacement line for Abel. What we're seeing are two lines of descent. Two lines of descent. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent, chapter 4, the descendants of Cain, the seed of the woman. Remember, Cain is a direct descendant. He's, He's a child of Adam and Eve. And then we're seeing the seed of the woman, Seth, who is a direct descendant, a child of Adam and Eve. One is the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, and the other is 
the seed of the woman. Chapter 4 shows us the progress of sin alongside of civilization and alongside of societal advancements. Priority number one in chapter 4 is the things of the world. What they can see and touch and feel because they've got nothing else. They've got nothing else to live for. And so live it up, baby. Because that's all you got is what you can see and touch and feel. Pleasure. Get as much as you can for as long as you can. As much power, as much pleasure, as much money. Because when it's over, you're done. That's the description we're getting in chapter 4 with the seed of the serpent. And then in the, in the description of the seed of the woman in chapter 5, priority number one is being identified with God. It's not that the seed of the woman shuns and rejects societal developments or societal prosperity. It's that God is just more important than that. It's that God is top shelf. And the societal developments, entertainment, city life, metallurgy, I mean, it's on the list. Maybe it's number four or five or six on the list. It's not that they're unimportant. It's just under the seat of the woman, the line of the seat of the woman, God is top shelf, priority number one. Then we get to Genesis 6. And in Genesis 6, we get an intensified attack on the seed of the woman. We get a direct attack, a demonic attack on the seed of the woman. Look at Genesis 6, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face, <clears throat> excuse me, on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall become 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a great contrast between this And Genesis 1 and 2, where there's peace and prosperity and intimacy with God. Here we have evil, exponential growth of evil on the planet. Now, there's disagreement about what's happening in this passage. The disagreement centers around the phrase, sons of God. Who are they? In the the Hebrew, it's b'nei cha Elohim, the sons of God. There are basically three different views, and I'll talk about each one of them. Genesis 6 doesn't tell us who the Benecha Elohim are, who the sons of God are. But whoever they are, their sexual relations with women produced the Nephilim. And the Nephilim is a transliteration. What most Bibles do is they get to the Hebrew word Nephilim and they just give English letters to it because they don't translate it. Because it's difficult to know exactly what the Nephilim are. It's found only in one other spot in the Bible, the word Nephilim. When the spies entered the land and ten of them gave a bad report, they spoke of the Nephilim, Numbers 13.33. There also, this is, this is the description of that event, there also, we, there also we saw, this is the report from the ten, we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim. That's just a a parenthetical that Moses gives us in in, in Numbers 
13, he says, by the way, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And keep reading. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. So in Numbers 13, Nephilim means giants. That's clear in the context of Numbers 13. But what we know is that the Nephilim of Numbers 13 cannot be the Nephilim of Genesis 6. Impossible for them to be the Nephilim of Genesis 6. Because the Nephilim of Genesis 6 are destroyed by the flood. The word Nephilim is being used, to be sure, in Numbers. But that is thousands of years after the flood. And so the Nephilim of, of Numbers, the Nephilim that the, 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 the 12 spies saw, and 10 of them came back and spoke of the Nephilim, we can't go in, we can't go in, the giants are too big. Those Nephilim are different than the Nephilim in Genesis 6, because the flood happened in between, and everybody died on the planet except Noah and his wife and their sons and their wives. So those Nephilim of Genesis 6 are not the same Nephilim What we do know is the Nephilim of Genesis 6 are at least giants. At a minimum, they're giants. But I think they're much more than that, and we'll see that in a moment. Let's go back to the sons of God, the phrase the sons of God. There are three main views of who they are. Sons of God, view number one, are the Genesis 5 descendants. In other words, they're the descendants of the line of Seth who intermarried with the Genesis 4 descendants. Under view number one, the sons of God in Genesis 6 are the line of Seth, the seed of the woman, who intermarried with the line of Cain, the Genesis 5 descendants intermarrying with the Genesis 4 descendants. And so now everybody's all evil because there's been intermarriage and the the evil of of the Genesis 4 descendants, the line of Cain, impacted the, the rightness, the goodness of the Genesis 5 descendants. They intermarried, and so now there's intense evil. That's view number one of who the sons of God are, that they're the Genesis 5 descendants who intermarried with the Genesis 4 descendants, the line of Seth intermarrying with the line of Cain. View number two is that the sons of God are mighty rulers, mighty kings of the era who amassed large harems, and those harems promoted evil and wickedness. The, 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 way, the way you would see the, the harem of Solomon, for example. God's design is for one man and one woman. That's enough trouble. I say that sarcastically, right? Marriage is designed to be perfect union between a man and a woman. It's not designed to be trouble. But when you put two sin natures together, there's trouble. And that's why God's got to be number one in marriage. And then marriage is not trouble. It's joy as God intended it to be. But when you have one man and 50 women, that's no bueno. That's a disaster. And so view number two about the son, who the sons of God are in Genesis 6 is the view that the sons of God were leaders, they were kings who amassed big harems, and those harems promoted evil on the earth. View number three is that the sons of God are angels. And this view 
goes to the book of Job, where in the book of Job, sons of God are, that phrase is used to describe angels on multiple occasions. And so under view number three, fallen angels had sexual relations with human women, and this spread evil throughout humanity. This is the view that I hold. If we were studying angelology, I'd spend a lot more detail as to why I think this is the better view, that sons of God in Genesis 6 were fallen angels who had sex with women. I think that is the better view. Is that a supernatural, freaky view? Yes, it is. No question. But just because we think something is supernatural and freaky doesn't mean that it's untrue. It is irrelevant. Your opinion about Scripture is irrelevant. The Word of God is the Word of God. Whether you like it, whether you think it's bizarre, whether you think it's cool, whether you dislike it, that is of zero consequence. Our responsibility is to submit to the Word, period. Every day of the week and twice on Sunday. And so this is the view that I hold that the sons of God were fallen angels. If we were studying angelology, I would spend more detail on it. So I'm going to move through this quickly because our, our focus really is on the seed promise of the Abrahamic covenant. The strongest, maybe, maybe one of the strongest arguments as to why sons of God in Genesis 6 is a reference to fallen angels, maybe one of the strongest arguments is the language of Second Peter and the language of Jude. In 2 Peter 2, 4, we read this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others. Right? Noah, his wife, three boys, and their three wives. There's your, there's your eight, Noah plus seven a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. So sad that the United States of America disregards this grave, grave warning from God. But that's a topic for another day. Look at Jude, Jude 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged as these. Who are the these? The these are the angels. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. God will judge the United States of America. He just will. Ruth Graham said it well when she read Billy Graham's book, Billy Graham had her proofing one of the chapters. And when she finished the chapter, she startled Billy Graham. And she looked up and she said, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's not going to do that. He's not going to apologize. God doesn't apologize because he does nothing wrong ever. Look, I wish it, wish it wasn't true because I love my country. But I love my God more than I love my country. 
So we have a warning here. My objective isn't to get into the, to the, to the law that our Congress is about to adopt, legalizing by statute gay marriage. Right? We're going to have all three branches of the federal government mandating, mandating that the states honor that which God condemns. We're going to have the legislature, Congress, the president surely will sign it. And the five rogue justices of the Supreme Court already took us there five years ago in their abuse of the Constitution, making it up as they often do. My real focus, though, in taking you to these passages in 2 Peter and in Jude is that they're describing a group of angels who are incarcerated, a group of fallen angels who are incarcerated because of their gross immorality in going after strange flesh like the Sodomites and like the Gomorites. These appear to be fallen angels who had sex with women in Noah's era. Not all fallen angels are imprisoned. But this portion of fallen angels who committed this heinous sin are imprisoned. The others are free to assist the devil. The others are free to assist the devil in pursuing his hate of God's people, in pursuing his rulership of the earth. Now, some argue that the sons of God in Genesis 6 cannot be fallen angels and that fallen angels could not have had sex with women because of Jesus' words in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 30, read like this, reads like this. Jesus says, For in the resurrection they, the they there are humans, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In this text, Jesus says the resurrection body will not be able to procreate. We're not going to make baby humans when we're in heaven. Just like angels can't make baby angels in heaven. But what Jesus doesn't address in this passage is sexual interaction between angels and humans. I think what we're seeing in Genesis 6 is a full frontal demonic attack on the seed of the woman. It's an effort to mutate humanity. It's an effort to change the DNA structure of humanity. Because if every woman on the planet is, has a DNA structure that is part, fallen, part angel and part human, then it's game over. And God is the unthinkable. He's a loser. And he can't fulfill his word that he gave in Genesis 3, 15, that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. If every woman's egg, to be even more direct, if every woman's egg, the seed of the woman, literally, on the planet, has been mutated so that it's not fully human, and it's quasi-angel, quasi-human, then God is a loser, and God is one who can't fulfill his word. And of course, those things are an impossibility, because God's word is unstoppable. That's what we're seeing in Genesis 6, I believe. I believe we're seeing a direct demonic attack on the seed of the woman. It is an effort to mutate the human cell structure so that humans stop being humans. And so the effort there is for there to be no Messiah, for there to be no descendant of Eve, 
who would crush the head of the serpent, who would save those who trust in him, who would give relief from the curse by undoing the curse. These creatures, I believe, were half angelic, half human, and they brought a new level of evil into the human race, onto the planet, a level that far exceeded the level of evil of the line of Cain. So God will protect the seed of the woman, and he will do it decisively. He will do it through Noah, and we'll study that next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you because you are an awesome God. You're a God that we love, that we fear, that we respect. Help us honor you. Help us stand in, the wor- in a world that is increasingly wicked. Give us strength. Give us humility. Give us focus that we may proclaim, proclaim your name to a lost and dying world. Help us learn your word. Give us eyes to see the things not seen. Help us understand your truth. We thank you for the opportunity to study it. And we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.